Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places a dive and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed, episode 407, is recorded live May 30th, 2019. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where it is a little bit wetter, watery, wetter than this time of year is normally. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well. I'm glad to be here again. Yeah. Can you believe how much rain we've had? Uh, yeah. Take a look at the rivers. They are not... Uh, not very good for diving. Uh, the St. Joe, I don't know if you've been down there lately, but you can almost stand or walk off the boardwalk into the water and uh, by the ro- in the river aspect. Wow. It's that high. Yeah. I, I, last time I was down there was uh, during the Blossom Time Festival, which is in the first weekend there in May. And it was about that, that tall. I mean, it, had, it was come up where they have, they have the boathouse there before the bridge. Uh, it was pretty high. Well, I posted pictures where we normally do our turkey dive, and uh, the water is behind the docks or the the walkway, fishing mm-hmm. piers. There's holes behind that, so when the water does go down, makes me wonder, did you deteriorate the structure of the uh, boardwalk? No, I'm sure it can. I, I can remember, you know, hanging around my grandfather's marinas and, that was one thing that you always had behind the seawall was sinkholes and pits and stuff because that you get kind of a hydraulic action going on there. You know, that water, because your, your seawall seemed to be a little bit higher than your ground, and that water's got to figure out some way to get to the river. Absolutely. Well, I know there was a good little item in the paper last week uh, taken by the harbor master in South Haven. Mm-hmm. Did you see that article? No, I didn't. Or they had a siege. <laughs> oh really yeah i had pictures of it and it's like it's down it's like where are the docks oh there they are <laughs> oh my gosh nothing just, like uh, the one they had god fought 40 years ago when we had an eight foot siege out there but yeah it's interesting that the harbor master took the pictures and took several of them when it comes up and down because it wasn't a, a matter of time and that was due to atmospheric pressure with the high waters that we yeah yeah because it probably happens other times it's just that when it's a little bit lower in the channel you wouldn't necessarily notice it as easily correct and this way it's when you've got to step when you have to step down off your boat to get to the dock (laughs) (laughs) yes yeah just kind of a, a wet spring this year a little little bit unusual i was mowing my yard uh a couple days ago and uh, after the rain, and normally where I'm at, it's dry, and it was it was completely flooded. I probably had three or four inches of of standing water in the grass. Yeah. So it's just, uh, yeah, we can't say that we're in a drought condition. That's for sure. That, well, you know, I was talking about the uh, water levels there on uh, Riverview Park. 
Uh, you know they expanded the no-wake zone way back beyond where it is currently, past the marinas. Mm-hmm. That. In, in uh, where is this, in the St. Joe River? Yeah, St. Joe River. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, and uh, it kind of seemed like it should have been before. And I'm I'm sure now it has to do with the high water level and just the, the traffic. Right. They developed, it's, not, it's, it's not all the way down to Eagle Point, but it's down like towards the Napier Bridge area. Yeah, because Eagle Point, well, yeah, now I'm, now I'm going to sound like an old man. It, Eagle Point didn't exist about the 20, 25 years ago. Absolutely right. That is correct. Yeah. Not as so, it existed. Uh, there, there was no, a name, it was, but it's not with the condos and the and the much more docking yeah. and piers that they have now. Yeah, yeah. So I think what's happened is you've got a higher density of boats and with this high water level, you get anybody going through there with a with a wake, and you probably have people who are complaining because it's uh they're having waves go over their sea walls or into the yards. And I, I can understand the complaining because my point I was going to talk is I took pictures also of that day of the boat traffic. Uh, mm-hmm. also trying to just get some nice pictures of boats. And the majority of the boats were doing a no-wake, except those ski It's amazing how much wake they really created on the shoreline. Because I took a picture of a couple, tried to get their attention to slow down, and it created, in the flooded condition, it made a big difference on the on the side where the yeah. water is already up on the embankment. Well, it's not helping. Yeah, a lot of your wake depends on your trim and uh, how your the vessel's moving through the water. And those jet skis, many times they 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 plow right on through, so you can get quite a, a wake from such a small vessel. Well, especially when they're having fun doing high speed nineties. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, and they're yeah, that's a. Uh, it's one of those uh, water enforcement training type of issues. Uh, of any activity out there, I want to say boating can be some of the uh, largest variety of people who know what they're doing to don't know what they're doing. Well, it's going to be very easy to enforce that because all you got to do is stand on the boardwalk with your tripod and you can get boat numbers and everything right off the bat and see the wake. So if they're going to mm-hmm. figure out how they're going to police it, very darn easy. They could if they could if they're uh, willing to do that way. Oh, how they, else are you going to do it? You're going to try to use your Coast Guard and catch them on a whatever. I can stay in one spot and catch them all because I got to buy. They got to go by me to get the, to get out. Yeah, yeah, you could be right there at the uh, um, kind of where the old barrier was before, uh, kind of there by the docks. Uh, now, everybody usually slows down. Until they get past the curve around the, from the Coast Guard, they can't see them. Mm-hmm. And then once they get up by the concrete loading docks and stuff, they ignore it a little bit. And then when they get past the bridge, then they ignore it. Mm, yeah. And that's when you got the, the three shipping or the boat docking areas in that area. Yeah. Yeah, because that beats up your boat. If you got a boat moored there, uh, I, I, that's, I think why those aren't the uh, preferred spots, because that's mm-hmm. got some of the roughest wake traffic right there. Well, let's go ahead and jump right on into the news this week. First article we have is uh, never take flight too soon after scuba diving. Uh, Min, was it Minhaj? 
Quidwa of Frisco spent six months preparing for his next vacation in Bali, where he was so excited to finally go scuba diving. I'm not a crazy adrenaline junkie, but I do like to randomly go on some type of adventure. But his trip off the shores of Bali was memorable for the wrong reasons. Deep uh, diving, deep ocean depths to go skydiving an airplane in such a short time gave him decompression sickness. As soon as we reached altitude, that's when it crashed and it just hit me, he said. Quidwai was, uh, had to take two flights back home to Frisco. His first shorter flight, he said he felt fine, but he said on the second 13-hour flight from Korea to Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport, he was in the worst physical pain. My joints started hurting, my elbows, my knees, everything started aching, he said. Dr. Derek Calhan, a medical city in Plano, was part of the team that treated him. He says decompression sickness is when high levels of nitrogen gases enter the tissue. The doctor likens it to opening a shaken bottle of soda. Instead of you slowly letting the lid off, those bubbles slowly come out. It'll explode out, sort of like the soda pouring out all over the place. Those bubbles will occur in your tissues, Dr. Kalman said. Those bubbles block the blood vessels, restrict blood flow. Untreated decompression sickness with the bends can be fatal. Uh, Quidwai cr- uh, crumpled on the floor of the Dallas-Fort Worth airport. His family rushed him to Medical City, Frisco. Doctors quickly diagnosed him with the bends, and he was taken to Medical City, Plano, where there's a hyperbaric chamber. Staff of Medical City, Plano, had just left for home after the shift and were called back at midnight to help treat him. When you're not in a coastal area, you don't think about things that can happen in coastal area, areas. Areas. Areas, uh, Calnan said. It's not an everyday or even every month diagnosis in North Texas. Five hours Quidwai uh, spent in the hyperbaric chamber getting him down to pressure, and it worked. It was kind of humbling, he said, when you take a course over it and you're warned not to do something. You're not God. You're not going to get yourself hurt. He's hoping other people hear a story. The rule is after diving, you're supposed to wait 24 hours before getting on a plane. He has learned this rule should not be taken lightly, no matter how adventurous you are. Well, I would concur with that. Yeah, so I'm trying. They they worded this funny. And at first I thought they said he was going skydiving, but it wasn't. He just he did diving in Bali. And then he just came home without waiting the 20, the proper amount of time so he yeah yeah that, that's what they say can happen oh yeah normally you don't hear about this in in flights unless there was something that happened in the flight but uh, considering where he's coming from they might have just gotten higher than the normal flights is this something that you hear about a lot mac people with uh, no no you don't really i'm just curious one if he'd have been on that, if they'd gave him oxygen on the plane, if that would have helped. Mm-hmm. And I was actually trying to determine uh, what the airplane pressure was at the time to see what kind of delta that he had. Yeah. Because what I've heard is that normally, I mean, I'm, and this is not a excuse to go and uh, fly anyway, but the, your your planes are pressurized. So you're going to get a little bit of change in altitude but not a lot so either he had quite a bit of bottom time and and the flight was quickly after it they didn't say how long it was 
But if he had that other flight of 13 hours and he still had that residual. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, it doesn't take a whole lot. Because in a normal short hop, about the time it was it would be coming out of solution, then uh, you'd repressurize. But thirteen well, my hours. Under, my understanding that most cabin altitude pressures are below eight thousand feet. Yeah, but that's, that's still significant because if you're doing a high altitude dive, mm-hmm. you know, at you know mile high city or something, the whole deco section is is totally different. Yes. So, you know, 10,000 or 8,000 feet or less even, 5,000, that's going to be a little uncomfortable, I would. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just not worth it. No. Getting bent like that, not only just being uncomfortable, but the residual effects, how that could have affected you. Yeah. So the the best way I I, I like to learn these mistakes is have somebody else make them. Yeah. I, I have flown in my own but I never go above two grand. But again, I'm not doing any uh, long dives and I don't have any deco aspect of my dive profiles. Now, could you calculate that yourself? So say you, say you did a river dive that day. So you, you know, you probably didn't get any real amount. Could you take a high altitude table from the highest altitude you're playing and, and flying in the plane and use that? That's what I was curious. I think if that would have made sense because you'd have had a very limited amount of bottom time, which would have not gotten you into the deco aspect. I was just yeah. thinking the same item. Yeah. Because if you calculated it for 8,000 feet altitude, and that's what the pressure aircraft was pressurized at, and then you did not exceed any deco limits on that, you should have been fine on the aircraft. Yeah. But yeah, I'm and, not going to uh, chance that myself. Because if you had an instantaneous decompression, you're going to be in a world of hurt. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Derek in the chat room is uh, mentioning that depending on where you're diving, they even tell you not to drive up a mountain, just not the plane. And that's the same thing. So whatever altitude you get up to, it's uh, that changes it all. And then here we have a diver finds a treasure trove of trashed electronics off the seafloor. Below Ammo Jetty, about six meters down the depths, divers have found a treasure trove that dumped electronics. Uh, Anthony Kozinis found the hall that would put any electronics store to shame while he was scuba diving just below the jetty, Woodman Point, yesterday. Mr. Kozinis collected a camcorder, a hard drive, old phones, battery banks, computer monitors, and cable from the seafloor. The entire Hall could be worth thousands. What was he drinking? The diver has now deposited the collection, which he believes is probably stolen goods in the bin where it belongs. There are loads of hazardous waste and electronics, so it can't be good for marine life. I think a lot of people want cameras installed on the jetty. Stuff like this happens all the time. People aren't aware. Usually it's from fishermen, but this is an unusual case. Well, I like the pictures. They're really good. But like you said, Treasure trove? I don't think so. Saltwater immersion I, days. This is nothing. Yeah, I think what he meant by "this is worth thousands" is what it was worth before it went in the water. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I think he's saying that this was probably a theft, and then somebody, you know, as they were sorting through it, 
pitch stuff that they didn't think that they could use or couldn't easily fence. Because it's all in one area. I mean, you see it right there in the bottom. Yeah. I mean, if the, anything had SIM cards or things like that, might be interesting to see what was on them. They probably will be okay for a while. Yeah. 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 Let's and see. from let's contamination, see. nothing's broken up into parts and pieces. So I don't think there's any fish out there going to eat these plastic items like that. I mean, they're too large. That one looks like a laptop. And if it's not, it's a huge monitor. Yeah. And this is uh, Community News, which is out of Australia. So this is Perth. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. But that's why we dive. We can find this kind of treasure. Yeah, you get all sorts of stuff. <laughs> yeah, and here, here's something else that you can find. Uh, an explosive-filled sunken ship could pose a huge threat to Sheppy. I think I'm pronouncing it right. The yeah, sunken American is... cargo ship off the Sheppy coast was to blow up. It could have caused devastating tsunami. Uh, not our wor- words, but those of film director has been studying the SS Richard Montgomery for 10 years has warned the ship poses a serious danger. In fact, the ship poses such a real threat, it's constantly being monitored by the government. The SS Richard Montgomery sank and split off the split in two off the coast of Sheerness in August 1944 with around 1,400 tons of explosive ores. Masks of the stranded ship can still be seen poking above water, an eerie reminder of what lies beneath. After spending at least 74 years almost completely submerged, time has taken its toll on the aging ship, and the government has previously warned the risk explosion are more likely than ever. According to the report by the Maritime and Coast Guard Agency, there are holes in the ship that allow the explosive to escape. Worrying, there are parts of the wreck that still house uh, 2,000 cases of used and non-fused fragmentation cluster bombs and 208 tons of bombs containing TNT. If those explosives suddenly detonate, a catastrophic explosion could ensure which may endanger lives. A 2004 report by the New Scientist suggested that if the ship did explode, it'd be one of the biggest non-nuclear blasts ever and would devastate the port of Sheerness, according to uh, the newspaper Daily Mirror. The sighting ship is constantly being monitored by the Maritime Coast Guard Agency and is a well-signed, uh, well-signposted to ensure no ships inadvertently wander in the path of the sunken danger. Large-scale disasters inevitable. Ken Knowles, a director that spent 10 years making a film about the ship, believes there's a condition is worsening, and if nothing is done, a large-scale disaster is inevitable. He should, he said. He said that should the corroding ship's bombs explode, debris would cause damage to the area in a twenty-mile radius. What's more, he argues for potential that the explosion could cause a tsunami. If the Montgomery went off, it could cause a tsunami that would flood London. He also points out that despite the protective measures, there have been multiple occasions where calamity was narrowly avoided. There have been near misses from cargo ships going up the, the Thames. We could have been warned off by the Sheerness Docks control tower, he said. Ken believes most Sheerness residents take the ship for granted and do not feel it poses a threat. He said it is something that most will say has been there 70 years. What are you worried about? If you went in the pub and asked people about it, they would say, not the Montgomery again. Despite this, he says, during the studies of the ship, he has heard one individual who ended up leaving Sheerness out of fear of the Montgomery and its bombs. 
Should a team of bombs disposal experts attempt to defuse and remove the Richard Montgomery cargo, it would require evacuating everywhere within a 25-mile radius for months at a time, which Ken argues is realistically an impossibility. He said there is one bomb found in High Street. The bomb disposal team evacuates the area within 10 miles because the size of the bomb would affect that Montgomery. There are 300 bombs. Ken feels the Ministry of Defense is reluctant to find anything about the Montgomery because currently there's no way to tackle the problem. If he speaks to officials, they would say there is no solution. Something is going to happen. It's quite really sad because nobody in a high position, even bomb disposal experts, have got a solution. Well, if that were on land, what would they do? If it was that dangerous a situation, and by monitoring, you mean they're going to watch it, and then suddenly it goes boom, then they know I had a problem. What the hell does monitoring do if they're not going to do anything about it? It's either going to be nothing or it's going to blow up, right? Yeah. So what does monitoring do? Well, couldn't you build a cofferdam around this? And do what? A cofferdam? Yeah, and do what? Well, drain it. Then you would, and then dispose of it that way. Like you said, if it was on land, you'd have to. So then if it drained and started drying out, then potassium manganate and a few things like that, which is probably in there, become more dry and unstable? Then just wet it down as you're, as you're doing it. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I'm. Well, like they said, well, there, is there, there is no solution. Because if there were, they, they should have done it. But. If they don't, and it does do that, they're going to, their butt's in a ringer again. You knew it for years and years, but you didn't do anything. They're going to get sued. Well, maybe not, because then you have to get permission to sue them, right? Just like here, you can't sue the government, and they're not going to give it to you. Yeah. It just seems like the longer they wait, the, you know, like they, it hasn't been a problem yet. Because it seemed like the original thing to do would have been just to blow it up in the first place. I mean, just evacuate everybody, do it as a a bombing run test, drop some explosives, and just blow the whole thing to pieces. Shows what I know. (laughs) And then here to kind of go along with the theme, diver finds possible torpedo off the ocean floor in Fort Lauderdale. The scuba diver made an unusual find under the sea off the coast of Fort Lauderdale, a possible torpedo or an explosive device. Local diver Kevin Knopinger said the underwater discovery makes for a strange kind of throwback. That dive, we saw some dolphins, eels, and things like that, really nice turtles. But yeah, to see something we think is a torpedo is really interesting to see that. He was out diving a couple of years ago and found a suspicious object in the ocean floor but never marked it. Days before Memorial Day weekend, he found it again. He believes it's a sign. Maybe it's fate. Memorial Day, and all of a sudden we find that torpedo again. Said that he found the object a half mile off the shore of the northern section of Fort Lauderdale Beach. Well, he isn't sure it's a torpedo. The diver said it certainly looks like one. It had a nose to it. It also, on the back, it had what we believe is called a cowling, where you would normally have props. Noppinger said he was notified the U.S. Coast Guard is fine, and while he plans to go back and look at it, certainly keep his distance. We just looked at it underwater and went like, this thing could blow up, and we didn't touch it. We swam by it. He has lived in Fort Lauderdale for 30 years. He said it's possible torpedo is the most bizarre thing he's ever found while diving. Well, when they were looking for the troche, they had found quite a few torpedoes, but a lot of them were practice torpedoes. 
that's what I was wondering when I was reading this, if it was possible it was a practice. And didn't they do a lot has, of bombing runs? It rusted and, and deteriorated, didn't it? I couldn't watch the video. Oh, okay. And they didn't, they didn't, I don't think they have a static photo here, so it's just a video. Uh, but that, I mean, that could be what it is. I'm sure what they'll do, the Coast Guard will go out and put somebody on it and they'll decide if they, if it's something to pick up or not. But how many years have, have they known about this one? Uh, well, he said he just, he just told them. So who knows? I mean, do they normally, if somebody reports a torpedo, leave it or do they go and look for it? Uh, I really don't know what they would do. Don't touch it. <laughs> well, that'll be the common stand, yeah. But he didn't say how far he was off. But if they're in a Fort Lauderdale area, you can be quite a ways out and still be shallow. Oh, yeah. So that's a lot of water where something could be. Back in the Carolinas, back in the day, uh have a place out there in Lake Murray called Bomb Island. And that's where they used to do their practice bombing. So when the water would go down real low during the summers, you could go out there and look for, for ordnance if you were so inclined. <laughs> sometimes it was practice, sometimes it was not practice. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I mean, there are instances where if low on fuel and you're heading back to base, uh, you would sometimes drop your torpedoes just to, to not have them on if you're having a pro- if you're some risk of you landing. Well, I know that if uh, you were at Davis Bessie plant and you were walking the perimeter as a guard and you were on the water side, uh, you would occasionally find ordnance have washed up on shore. Oh, okay. Because if you look at the charts, there are several areas out there that are off-limits or could be posted as off-limits when they used to have uh, military practices in that area. Ah. And some of the stuff they actually did wash ashore. And as recent as when I was down there back in uh, East Wind, well, 10, 12 years ago, ordnance would yeah. still be uh, found. And mm. some of the ordinances like missiles, <laughs> aircraft <laughs> missiles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, but the majority of it was dummy. Yeah. But some of it was not dummy. And it yeah, was a well, live fire range out there. Yeah, I mean, who wants to be the one to make the determination of the dummy or not? You always do the, you know, just you hit the nose real hard a couple times, that will tell you. Yeah, yeah. And if it's rusted, it's a little hard to tell did they move the safety out of it or not. And then how about this one? You know, mysterious shipwreck found uh, during equipment test. Uh, a previously unknown shipwreck from the mid-1800s is found by accident as NOAA sea explorers were testing equipment in the Gulf of Mexico on May 16th, according to a mission report posted this week. Officials of the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration say the unexpected exciting discovery was first picked up on sonar, then verified the remotely operated vehicle sent to the seafloor. It was found roughly 160 miles off shore along the Florida escarpment and sits 1,460 feet down, no officials told the Charlotte Observer. 
No explorer said the wreck is a mystery for many reasons, including the fact that nothing was found on the site reflecting the vessel's rig, trade, nationality, or crew. However, there is evidence that may be caught fire and burn, suggesting a disastrous end for the crew far from dry land. It is believed the 124-foot ship is lunar or brig built in the mid-19th century, tall sheathed in copper. The numbers 2109 are clearly visible along the edge of the rudder, and even nail patterns can still be clearly seen, explorers said. Experts were able to infer the time period of the vessel's origination based on a number of construction features. However, this information does not indicate the range of the vessel at the time it was lost, which could have been decades later. Footage from remotely operated vehicle revealed the hull is largely intact up the waterline, likely due to protect copper sheathing that still clings to its timbers of fish. However, all structure above the waterline is missing, and during the initial observations of the dive, there did not appear to be many traces of the standing rigging. Multiple timbers have been remotely operated, can be seen by a remotely operated vehicle, appeared charred, and some of the fasteners were bent, which may be an indication of burning. No explorers say. While the evidence is still being assessed, it's possible the sailing vessel caught fire was nearly completely consumed before sinking. This explains a lack of artifacts from the rigging deck upper works, as well as a lack of personal possessions. Emily Crum, a spokeswoman for NOAA Ocean Exploration Research, told the Charlotte Observer the main focus expedition was to test equipment, so finding the shipwreck by accident was certainly a surprise. Typically, when or explore shipwrecks, we have some basic information that allows us to search for a target. In this instance, there's no information to suggest the wreck was a team just stumbled upon it because it wasn't a planned exploratory, exploratory dive. We had to quickly rally marine archaeologists to join the dive via live video feeds, and they were able to read some observations. Additional analysis of the video expected to unravel a more accurate picture of what happened to the ship. Do they say how long it was? I thought this is 120-something feet. Okay. So that's a pretty decent size, respectable. When when I, because we've had examples of, of ships like that in the Great Lakes, uh, and what would happen is a, is a vessel would catch fire at the pier, and instead of letting it take the whole pier wharf up, they would pull it out into the water and set it adrift. And and I wonder if this may be the same thing because that uh, there was one uh, wreck that went out of Michigan City, and it stayed neutrally buoyant for months, and kind of bobbed up and up and down the coast. Wasn't that the uh, the Muskegon that did that? I'd have to look. There's uh, one of them where that happened. So I'm, I was relating that story to this and wonder if this could be something similar. What I liked about that one, though, as you went through it, did you see the video of divers discovered gold off of uh, some shipwrecks on North Carolina coast? No, I didn't. I didn't open, watch that that video. Well, I, I went to another link from that. It says explorers find seven shipwrecks off the Carolinas, all believed to hold gold coins and jewelry. The same team of explorers that found hundreds of gold and silver coins on. North Carolina's S.S. Pulaski shipwreck says it has located seven more potentially valuable shipwrecks off the coast of North and South Carolina. Blue Water Ventures International said this week that its divers conducted extensive site surveys 
in hopes of finding as many as 12 shipwrecks believed to hold valuable coins or relics. Sonar was also being used. The suspected identities of the seven shipwrecks were not released. Uh, and I am looking at the pictures, and damn, I, I don't know how deep they are, but they're not on rebreathers. They got their hands are uh, ungloved, and uh, I don't know if I want somebody to video me picking up gold coins. <laughs> no, <laughs> what gold coins? That's all. No. All pewter and brass. No, that, that's that's where you get some of those uh, the the chocolate wrapped in gold foil. You you have those, and that's what we found. So it this does not look to be very deep for a lot of these are looking at, and from the pictures I'm looking. Hmm. Uh, Keith Webb, CEO of Blue Water Ventures International, posted photos of some of the wrecks on Facebook, showing timbers, uh, piles of timber, exposed beams, twisted pipes from steamship engines, and resin that. Web says can be used to set the dates of the sites. It's always a thrill to find X marks to spot. Everyone is excited to be back on the water. Divers recovered material from the seven wrecks, which is being studied to prove they were uh, to prove when the ship sank. Further research of the historical data detailing certain shipwrecks will commence in order to better identify these sites. Uh, the Florida-based Blue Water Ventures International says. Survey operations on the sites will continue through the 2019, which meant if you want to take a look up for that particular company, and I'm sure you're going to find the details plus the uh, website videos. Said the uh, web told the Charlotte Observer this year, the team working to Pulaski have found hundreds of gold and silver coins that predate the explosion of the steamship in 1838. The first 502 coins sold uh, were sold this year, but the prices fetched were not released. The oldest was a 1750s Brentish gold guinea. Uh, Michael Indred of Endurance Exploration Group, a partner in the company, He's, he believes there are more than uh, 100,000 gold coins, gold and silver coins, still to be waiting to be found on the Pulaski along with jewelry. And some of the pictures are very, very good. And obviously, all very diveable without rebreathers. So wow, that looked nice. good. I'll, I'm going to copy that to paste it into you guys. And, uh, some of the pictures are interesting. So I figure out yeah, you, disappeared. Yeah, you, I guess not everything to be found has been found. Uh, you think? <laughs> well, let's see. Charlotte Observer. That was quite interesting. But if you hadn't had your, your Yeah, that's uh that looks pretty interesting. Makes you wonder these wrecks that people have been on just didn't realize that there was gold or Well the pictures that uh where the guys hold up the money, they got metal detectors. It looks like a very nice sandy bottom. And mm -hmm. what they were digging in did not seem to be very deep. Yeah. So that could prove to be quite entertaining. Yeah. Well, hopefully they'll, they'll keep us informed as much as they can. Well, if you don't know, identify what the wreck is and you get the money, nobody else can claim it for them. Yeah. And it can't belong to France or Spain or somebody else. Excuse me. Well, that does it for scuba in the news this week. 
do you, let's see we we just come off the memorial day weekend it looked like a lot of people had gotten in the water i saw that uh bob was was getting some diving in did he did he make it on an ever five did we hear well see i know that in the past couple of weeks he's got through the coral lake coral it's still pretty chilly there uh let's see know that he did get on one that had pictures. Amy and them got on 16 again. Yeah, and then I saw that uh, Kevin was out looking for the Verano. Yeah, let's see. And he didn't, they didn't find much of it. Uh, See, I've I've definitely uh, dove it with Bob. Bob's got numbers for the engine, so I think that's where we've been, as I've been on that part. And there's also some boulders there in the section, but the, all he said he found was the, the fuel tank. It's kind of spread out and there wasn't a lot there to begin with. So if you have a, a lot of sand building up on it. Well, I know they've also dove Cora. They dove the, um, iron sides. Uh, then here lately, I just saw some pictures I had posted and it was on, Oh, what the heck? Uh, the North shore tug. Oh, really? Yeah, 150. They said the visibility was minimum of 60 feet. Oh, wow. Yeah, well, let's see how they said that. Uh, from 30 feet down, we could see the bottom at 155 feet. Oh, I love those dives. Those are the best. Uh, he said he really didn't enjoy the aspect because at 60 feet, he started having a leaky through his dump valve, and it was 41-degree water. So he yeah, did a quick pass cool. around everything, got up to Warmer waters, four to six. Yeah. Yeah, a leak never makes it any fun. And I thought somebody had dove. Um, was it somebody else that dove out there? You're probably right. It was a Verano, wasn't it? Wasn't that the one Kevin dove? The the Verano? Yeah. Yeah, he, yeah, he had said that was, I think, on Monday that they had dove the Verano. But they, they, all he found was the gas tank. So I think Bob was going to give him numbers that he has, which should put him right on the engine. Yeah, and I think uh, Karen was going to go to Hey Corey. Yeah, she had mentioned that she was that was going to be the week before twenty fifth last yep. weekend. Yeah. So I hadn't heard anything else. I don't believe I've seen the picture, so I don't know. Yep. So, but we are getting to that time of the year. We're hitting, just about to hit June here. It'll be June this weekend. I, isn't that amazing? It is. And I just don't think we've had the, the diving in the big lake this year between the weather and, you know, we've been washed out of the river quite a bit. And I don't see that easing up here for a while. Well, somebody had been in the river and I'm trying to remember who it was. Well, we haven't heard much from, from John. I know he's been working on his boats, but. Seems like he'd be one to get in the water. Well, no, I saw it was Eric or somebody, aren't it? Somebody in the chat room, maybe? Ask if that was Eric. I had a picture of the back of his pickup truck. I had some uh, pictures of some treasures, uh, some oh. couple of nice bottles and things. I cannot find it right this second now that I want it. <laughs> Always the case. Yeah. Yeah, and then we got the mermaid stuff coming up. I won't be available for that, darn it. I really miss. That's going to be fun. I'd be sorry to be missing it. 
Yeah, Eric said that was from uh, Gojak Lake. G-O-G- that one bottle that was broken was really nice. G-O-G-U-A-C Lake. So was, there was a broken bottle showing? Well, one of the better bottles. The bottom was broke off, but it was nice and bossed. Uh, that's always the way. That's I always think that you need to do a diorama with sand in the bottom to hide the broken. Well, had enough anchors, too. We had quite a few sash anchors, old anchor, and looked like an old, just old, old uh, square drop anchor. So he did pretty nice. Yeah. Didn't say what the visibility was, though, as I recollect. He says 5 to 20 feet. Wow. So that's not bad. I'll take the 5 feet, man. I can do good. Yeah. How deep and how long? Those with the pregnant pause, it's because we're talking to the person who dove. <laughs> yeah. Oh, in the edit, it all goes away. Two dives, both about an hour. And what was the water temperature? Let me see. My prediction is going to be about 47. Because it's still cold. That's the one thing. It was even in the, the newspaper that said that the water temperatures were pretty cold. I haven't looked at the buoy yet to see if we start to get anything. That might make some good visibility if we still have cold water. 52 at 30 feet, colder yet deeper, which makes sense. The, it'll be a little chilly as you get down there. I was going to try to get out uh, Saturday at high noon at Pawpaw, but Sir Larry is in Wisconsin, so he's not going to be back. Yeah, I've... But not this weekend. I will, hell or high water, get in the water after yeah i've i'm to be the eight i'm i'm locked up in home project and graduation commitments for the next four weekends now the week after that i am too that's why i'm gonna miss the uh mermaid but there's also a nice boat show coming up at south haven it's like darn it everything comes at one time it always happens it's just the the Just the nature of things. Yeah. Well, do you have a safety story this week? Well, I got a long one to go through it. Yeah, sure. Well, pretty long, not long, long. Okay, I'll just start out. Why do diving accidents happen and how to avoid them? Diving accidents happen, but they can also often be prevented. On June 16, 2015, for example, a diving accident occurred in Dutch Spring, Pennsylvania. 41-year-old scuba diver was found in the water unresponsive at the Dutch Springs Recreational. The cause of death has not yet been released at that time. However, that did not stop the local newspapers from claiming the area is dangerous and making calls for an investigation of the business. The recreational area is a converted quarry of 50 acres, an eco-sized water area. Quarry has sloped sides with an assortment of underwater attractions and has a maximum depth 100 feet. Most of the items placed as underwater attractions include trucks, buses, and airplane all around 50 feet. The park is one of the most popular diving locations on the East Coast and is frequently used for training. There was an estimated 70,000 dives done last year at the park. The park has had 16 deaths in 30 years. The opening line of the newspaper article in the thrill-seeking world of scuba diving alerted me that the article would be a negative about dive safety. Later, 
In the article was a statement, a recreational diver from Bethlehem said Dutch Springs should post signs indicating a number of fatalities. It has a way to drive home warnings about the dangers of diving. It sort of showed maybe the journalist doesn't exactly know what he's talking about. Quarry seemed to have a high number of accidents, but a high concentration of dives is a reasonable explanation. Generally, you cannot imagine 70,000 dives a year at your favorite reef and not having had an incident. Scuba diving is a prime example of risk management. Diving is inherently a dangerous sport, and yes, diving accidents do happen. However, the advancement in equipment design and proper training has brought the risk to a level that recreational scuba diving is no longer considered an extreme sport, but a family sport. When you make the comparisons between sports using serious injuries and death as a measurement, scuba diving falls slightly below horseback riding, and golf. And just above that for the ultra-dangerous sport of table tennis. Now, why do accidents happen? Due to the environment and the lingering belief that it's dangerous, scuba diving accidents are investigated and reported more deeply than other sports. Organizations like Dan Alert and the British Subaquatics Club maintain records and statistics of diving accidents with the goal of avoiding future accidents. And both of these organizations provide annual reports on their websites. Now, the British Subaquatic Report covers a smaller group. It does provide a broader look at diving incidences, including dive-related surface events. As you read the report and other items, they talk about diving accidents, especially fatal ones. A clear pattern emerges. Panic plays an important part in the majority of the accidents, and very often divers are going beyond their limits which is the trigger. Rapid ascents cause diving accidents. In accident investigation and management, the term trigger is often used. The event trigger is the first thing that occurred in a chain of events that led to the actual accident. may have been a seemingly minor item, such as a leaking mask, but it led to the next step and onward until all control was lost. So in reality, you can say a definition of an accident is the total loss of a control of an event. A rapid ascent is the largest cause of injury and death in scuba diving. Decompression illness and air embolisms are the two largest groups of injuries. Rapid ascent is the main factor in DCI when the cause is known. And an estimated 36% of all these incidents, incidences the rapid ascent was a result of a panic reaction. So a reported death illustrates the power of panic. Uh, father and son were diving on a wreck, with the son being a newly trained diver. The father diving around 90 feet was slightly above his son and watching him. Unfortunately, he was not paying attention to his gauges and was diving into a current. The father ran out of air, but instead of clear thinking and relying on training, the father bolted to the surface. As the father ascended, the expansion of air in the tank gave him a few extra breaths around 30-foot depth. The father seemed to recover from his panic and realized he had added a pony bottle to his equipment. In his panic, not only did he forget about his dive buddy's octopus, he also forgot about an alternate air supply. The son joined him. Together, they made it back to the surface. However, on the surface and prior to boarding the boat, the father lost consciousness and died. Reported cause was an aerobolism. Now, 
In this case, a trigger of failing to monitor his gauges led to running out of air that created a panic reaction led to the ra- rapid ascent and his death. The diver had two options that would have resulted in no injuries if he had not panicked. The other item, poor buoyancy control can lead to death. Poor buoyancy control is the second leading cause of rapid ascents, accounting for 27% of the accidents. As a diver ascends, the air in his jacket expands and increases the rate of descent. Many divers that start a monitor or they're monitoring their own control uh, ascent fail to take actions before the momentum overcome their ability to dump the air. Their body position also made it difficult to vent all the air from the BC. Flaring your body to increase the drag while dumping air can assist in regaining control. These are skills learned in open order, but often forgot. And even if they're not forgotten, they're very, very seldom practiced. If the situation were caused by the diver being underweight, they should have recognized the problem occurring with the cylinder and start becoming, you know, as it became lost the air bait, they became more buoyant. Aborting the dive early, notifying the dive buddy of the problem, returning to the anchor line if there is one, can help control the situation so it does not become an emergency. Now, many carry a delayed surface marker. The key is how many learn and then how many practice to deploy it. So a third major reason in this group surprisingly deals with the incorrect deployment of a submerged or delayed surface marker buoy. 26% of the accidents involved the deployment of the buoy. Now, while not a skill that is taught in detail, it's a task that's becoming more common. And if you're not well-trained or careless, it's very easy to become entangled in the line and pull to the surface. So when you're practicing your deployment, you need to practice at a depth that it can't pull you to the surface. And then the other part they talked about was do you really know your limits? said, so when we take open water training, we're taught how to react to a variety of situations. Uh, it's a good foundation to go to, to grow your diving skills and become more confident and comfortable in your underwater ventures. Does not make us experts, though. By repeated diving and slowly challenging ourselves, we become better divers. In open water, you're normally limited to 66 feet varying slightly between agencies. The reason is that once we descend past this mark, the additional risk become more important to understand. Nitrogen narcosis is a mere mention in a number of open water training classes, but it's a very important risk to understand and to recognize, especially as you approach the plus 90 foot mark. Exceeding your bottom time is not likely to happen at less than 60 feet. Most divers are going to run out of air. An Australian study a few years ago showed hooker divers and snuba had a DCI rate 10 times greater than scuba divers. The reason they said was, well, nobody told us the danger of staying down. As long as we had surface supply air, we could stay down as long as we wanted. Then they talk about advanced open water training is a must if you want to go deeper than the standard standard open water. So advanced open is a necessity. Many accidents can be traced back to a diver being in conditions they were not able to handle. Often they were in situations they were not trained for, like deep diving, penetration wrecks, and advanced conditions such as low visibility and currents. 
Many recreational divers don't really understand that diving in a dry suit requires skills not taught in other courses. And it's not something you should just go out and try on your own. Finding themselves in situations beyond their understanding and ability to respond appropriately is another trigger that can lead to a panic response. There is no clear answer to what causes diving accidents, but it causes it die or involves so many factors. Of the factor, panic is clearly a major, uh, major component. Training, muscle memory, clear understanding of your diving environment can help us overcome a panic reaction. And if you practice your emergency procedures, you're more inclined not to have that broken link in your safety chain. The more frequently we dive using good practices, the better we become in our responses and avoiding panic. So the key takeaways to prevent a diving accident from happening, always dive within your personal limits, which you should know and have set. Practice makes perfect. Practice your buoyancy skills. Practice how to deploy that, des- that delayed surface market buoy safely before you have to do it in open water. Keep an eye on your gauges and your buddy, and do a buddy check before you get into the water. Do not enter caves or wrecks unless you are properly trained and equipped to do so. Use common sense at all times, and if you have not dove for a while, take a refresher to practice the basic skill for safe diving before you take a plunge. So, words of wisdom for today. That is a good article. When in the beginning where you were talking about it and somebody wanted the sign for the number of deaths at a location, I was thinking of if you did it for diving, you should do it for everything. You know, the, your your store shelves as you eat something that somebody died while eating, you know, that should be next to the shelf, that strip of highway. You know, how many people died on that? Well, it's like um, I use skydiving for a minute. In the, this month article, and the safety report on it, they were talking about they know they're uh, what USPA, United States Parachute Association, does is they like to get reports on near misses or accidents that didn't necessarily involve fatalities. But if somebody had an incident, it'd be nice to know about it so they could figure out why. And they looked at some of the values they were getting, and they know they had over 4,000 people who had declared on their re- Requals that they'd either had a reserve ride, but successful, or that they had had injuries, either that required medical assistance and or injuries that took them out of commission, such as sprained ankles. They'd like yeah. to know that kind of stuff by filing, you know, an, an incident report. You don't have to put names, but the key item is they wanted the information so then they could do a better job of being able to tell you. What's happening out there, what items can happen, do happen, and how you can learn from them of how not to make the same mistake or to make sure you respond the same way accordingly in a timely manner. Um, Mm -hmm. Skydiving, it's got to be a real timely manner. Yeah. So, personally, I'd like to see the same thing here. I'd like, you know, at the dive club, we always do, what did you learn? Mm -hmm. Do you have any accidents, near misses? You know, lessons learned. It'd be really nice to have some real-time events about what you did, why you think you did that. Yes. Yeah, that'll be good information. And then to have that across everybody. 
Well, it's like, again, last month we talked about the one we put in the newsletter, and everybody discussed it, and everybody says, those people are really dumb. (laughs) But then again, have you ever done anything that's really dumb when you think about it afterwards? Oh, plenty. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the, the question always comes up is, why did we do it when we knew better? And it still goes back down to that little item. Accents are usually cumulative of a little item, a little item, a little item. If we can break that, like the leaky mask, that kind of item that leads to a next step to the next step. But I can't believe, though, that if you ran out of air, you would forget your bailout. Mm. But that's something that, that happens. Yeah, at 90 feet, if you suddenly go and you got nothing, it it can make you do really crazy things really quick. Yeah. But That's, if you have that bailout around your neck, you know, I'm always thinking about what happens if, and I would hope they would be doing the same. Yeah. And some of that also is practice. Yeah. You know, just, just having the bailout, but if you don't have confidence that you can get that bailout turned on and get a breath in a reasonable amount of time, you may panic and think that the best way is to get to the surface. Or or have it there and don't turn it on or not have tested it at 10 feet as opposed to waiting till you need it. Yes. Yeah, my best regulator is on my bailout. Well, you have anything that you want to plug before we get out of here? Uh, I don't really have anything coming up there. I mean, I wish I'd have been available for the uh, mermaid dive. That's going to be a big one that's coming up. Yep. And that's the biggest one I can think of. And if you want to get out there and do a little diving before you get too much involved in laying down new boring. <laughs> yes. Take a two-hour break and go diving. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah I, I need to do something. Well, we can always go to Singer Lake. That's pretty close. Oh, yeah, that's right around the corner. I'm I'm almost afraid. Afraid that the uh, the muck is, yeah. But that that'd be good. Yeah, I, I need to get a dive in somewhere. And that one's a nice one. That uh, if nothing else, you can just verify that everything works. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I may have to. Uh, okay. Well, I'll, I think we're getting that time of the show. Are you ready? Uh yep. I'm sitting down. I'm really ready. Okay. So I've I've, I've got like a warm up here. So th- this is one that I, I kind of rejected because it wasn't good enough, but we'll just see. My boss said to me, you're the worst train driver ever. How many times have you derailed this year? I said, I'm not sure. It's hard to keep track. <laughs> not the response he wanted, I don't Yeah. yeah I must be looking for another one. Well, I, I have another one. Here, here's another one. It was one that I rejected because it was just too tasteless. <laughs> I asked a pretty young homeless woman if I could take her home. She smiled at me and said yes. The look on her face soon changed, however, when I walked away with her cardboard box. <laughs> That's bad. That 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 one. Uh, That's bad. Shows shows a little lack of heart there, I would say. So, so let, let's say I think this one this one might do it. When ordering food at a restaurant, I asked the waiter how they prepared the chicken. 
Nothing specially explained. We just tell them they're going to die. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah, uh, I may need to go to a new source for jokes. (laughs) So until next time, go out there and get wet. And stay safe.